Welcome to No Cartridge. I'm your host, Trevor Strunk Hagelbon on Twitter, and I am here with uh, a listener who I, I, I think we've talked a couple of times via via the Patreon, via just the podcast, but uh, talked a little more recently. Um, we share a lot of interest, including the topic of this episode, and uh, it's 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 my friend and yours, Zach Williams. Uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you 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 kind of sold me like pretty well on on having you on. Not that I really needed selling, um, but like you said, oh, I'm a fellow academic, and then you also said this episode will be on uh, Jet Grind and Jet Set Radio <laughs> or Jet Set Future, and I was like, wow, okay, that's uh, sure. <laughs> Please come on. Yeah, it's um, I think it's one of those um, it's one of those games that I think for the first time opened me up to the idea that this was like a an aesthetic medium in addition to you know just being kind of a fun hobby yeah and um i also introduced me more broadly to what i guess we would call in um industry speak the action sports uh (laughs) category of of athleticism um okay it's funny because like all that stuff uh like they have skateboarding in the olympics coming up this year if that even happens but um i remember it being kind of just like a backwater um back during that time. And it was really just kind of a watershed moment. Like it hit me at the right age and, uh, pretty much from there kind of, I mean, it introduced me to like probably the, the first music that I found for myself that I liked. Um, oh, okay. So, so you really like, so was that in future or was that in jet grind radio? Cause I'm, I, I will say I never played future. Um, that's one of the weird things about me. I like, I didn't have an Xbox at the time I had a Dreamcast. So I played and I bought the Dreamcast in large part because of jet grind radio, which, um, totally wowed me and I just wanted to play it all the time. And that was part of the reason I got the Dreamcast. but like, um, I never really played that much of uh, jet, jet set future. So was the music from jet grind or jet set that, that kind of inspired you? Oh, it was jet grind for sure. Jet set radio future is kind of a weird thing. Um, and uh, just as a, a kind of sequel to that game, that there, that game would even merit a sequel, and then just it, to kind of be a watered-down version of that on a piece of hardware that was probably three times more powerful than the Dreamcast or something. Yeah, I like. I, I always got the feeling that the that that sequel was basically just like, oh, uh, everyone kind of wanted to play Jet Grind Radio, who played it, but like very few people bought a Dreamcast. Let's just put it out on the Xbox so like people can finally get a chance. Um, but yeah, no one really talked about it because yeah, I got the feeling it was not nearly as good. I mean, it's, I don't even, I wouldn't even say it's bad. It's just kind of streamlined. And I think one of the things I kind of want to talk about mm. is the mechanics of like the first jet set radio or jet grind radio is, uh, just the fact that it's kind of laborious to play, um, yeah. in a way For sure. is really interesting, uh, just from like a mechanic standpoint and also from a narrative standpoint, and, you know, in the spirit of this particular podcast and like a sort of like aesthetic political kind of context as well. Yeah. So, I mean, go into it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you mean. Cause like for me, the, I will agree, like the, the mechanics are laborious, but it's also the only skating game that I've ever been able to sort of like do tricks in and enjoy. Like I, I'm very bad at Tony Hawk, even though I love and have very fond feelings about Tony Hawk. Um, I like grew up in the period of time where that's like mandatory to have fond feelings about Tony Hawk pro skater. Um, uh, but like, I am not good at it, uh, by any means, but I was very good at jet grind radio. I, I played enough of it that I got quite good at it. And like for whatever, like there's not a lot that you can master in that game. I would say there's, there's sort of a limited pool of like, Oh, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a pro player or whatever, but, or at least in my experience, but the, uh, 
you know, what I could master, I did, and it felt really good. But I kind of hear you on the laborious thing, so I want to hear you expand on that a little bit. Well, it's a it's it's a game that, especially if you, you approach it first on the Dreamcast, um, which doesn't have like two analog sticks. <laughs> so right. the camera, right. yes, basically, like you have to keep pressing one of the triggers to to realign it, but that trigger is also the one that controls like the spray prompts. So there's so much. <laughs> yes, yes, true. <laughs> So it's it's difficult to see at times, which is weird because it's a you know it's a highly visual game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. But also too, just the fact that uh, there's there's a pretty robust exploration component. There's like this really kind of uh, intense, I think, even for the time, difficulty to a certain number of the stages. Uh, the fact that you're being chased constantly, whether it be by rival gangs or police forces or paramilitary uh, troops or something along those lines. <laughs> Uh, there's all- it does the it does the Batman Arkham City thing far earlier than Batman Arkham City did, where it's like, well, we have to up the up the ante of these uh, people chasing you. Let's just make them the military. Yeah, and then after that, it becomes like this weird Seijin Suzuki like bounty hunter, like rogues gallery kind of thing. Oh yeah, which yeah, that part of the game was so good though. Like that that's the other thing though, where like. Uh, some games that I could imagine this happening and it just ruining the game, you know, like just being like, what are you doing? Why are you introducing these like increasing difficulties? These are so arbitrary. But I mean, of course, they're arbitrary, but it's also like it keeps raising the stakes in more and more ridiculous ways so that the aesthetic of the game, like, at, you know, your freedom fighters at the beginning, it's like, well, it's kind of silly to call us freedom fighters, whatever. Like, it's we're just doing we're just doing graffiti against rival gangs. Um but then as it goes on, like you and and uh, and DJK and stuff like that, all are, are like you just become mythologized over time. And it just so works. And it's something, too, that's kind of largely implied because it's not a very plot heavy game. Uh, no, <laughs> that's one of those things, too, I think I gravitated towards as well was. And yeah, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm wringing my hands about this or anything, but it's 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 a piece of like legitimate anti-establishment media um I would say probably one of the last like died in the wool pop media properties before nine eleven, where that was still kind of a thing, where like the mm-hmm. are bad people, where the military is bad, where corporatism's bad, and I think a lot of that probably comes out of you know, I would imagine, and I don't want to presume too much, but I would imagine you know kind of skepticism regarding like the bubble economy that had burst earlier in the decade um, or earlier in the last decade. Um, just like this kind of strange cultural environment out of which, you know, like faith in, you know, the national identity of Japan is again, kind of shaky. And then we have all of this, uh, stuff going on, like Shinto sects, like extorting Sam executives. And like, there's this very kind of, it it all kind of feeds into that. And you've got the Shibuya K thing, which is like this kind of like world culture influenced kind of push against the general nationalist culture that I guess was kind of, you know. I guess that it still is kind of like Japan's thing for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, you know, it seemed like this very open and different and strange and you know, multicultural kind of thing from the music to even the cast and stuff. Um, I think the cool thing about Jack grand radio too, is that the, like the, the Japan ness or the, the, the kind of way in which it feels very Japanese, right. Is so different from ways in which like, you know, 
games you would get like that would be like strange RPGs or something like that would feel Japanese. Like the I feel like there was like a whole industry of things marketed to people that was like, well, this is niche because it feels like Japanese. It doesn't feel American as a video game. Um, and that usually just took the form of, well, it sort of is like, I don't know, it's like cyberpunk or it is um, a very like high fantasy RPG with like, you know, reminds you of Return to Lotus War or something like that. Right. Like, but the I would say like this game was Japanese in a way that felt like no other game that I played. Like, you're right. Like, it speaks to kind of the cultural moment of of its creation as a Japanese product in like a way that does not center an American experience at all. Yeah, I would say that's true. And I think, too, uh, another thing worth mentioning that, I, that I've always found interesting about it was just the time at which it came out, the risk, I think, that it entailed, because mm -hmm. cast at that moment was sort of, you know, of course it was languishing. But, I mean, part of the reason it had languished is because they had sunken a lot of money into like that first push with a bunch of games that are pretty, you know, unsubstantial like as like they're all arcade ports basically and then yeah this gigantic gambit called shinmu that just kind of fell flat on its face in the west <laughs> and uh, yeah i guess that's true <laughs> that's very true about shinmu um uh, it's uh, i've never played it but like i have a lot of feelings about it anyway because of what a like what an, an absolute gamble it was and like what a strange kind of object it remains i mean i guess that's the same thing with a lot of games in the dreamcast probably why it has a kind of um i don't know like kind of a cult following even to today oh absolutely like i still have one um oh yeah yeah it's it's one of those things i never pick up and play because the library is pretty small especially like <laughs> i mean if you don't want to play crazy taxi 2 or something like that like you've got basically space channel 5 a few things that you could import that are maybe worth importing mm -hmm. for the most part it's pretty much just jet set radio for me and <laughs> and, and and some of the sports games are really good but no it's i enjoyed power stone at the time but i don't think i would now it, it it's really wonky uh, unfortunately uh, it's definitely one of those things that if you're like 12 or 13 years old and you have the time to to just beat all of your friends like for hours a day that's one yeah. thing, but playing like playing it by yourself in 2020 is is not a very fun experience. I can't imagine. Um, so like uh, for you then, like obviously this was a this was an important like experience in terms of play. But like, how did the politics impact you as like? Because they seem to be very important to you in a way that, I mean, I I recognize the politics. I don't know how important they were to me in like. Um, forming my politics today because I think I just viewed them as sort of part and parcel with a lot of like the punk rock I was listening to at the time or whatever like it felt anti-establishment in a way I recognized um, I didn't think about it as deeply as you you have so like how did that did that help uh, determine your politics or or was that something that was politically relevant to you as a, as a kid well it's it's sort of a it, it's sort of this weird thing where I was mentioning the the action sports connection and, and really it was mm. like a first exposure to not only like a kind of cultural kind of staple from this place that I had slowly become obsessed with. Like I was really into anime and stuff and like, you okay. know, like, you know, it's very Japanese in its way that, you know, it doesn't really center a Western experience, but it also doesn't exoticize Japanese culture in a way that other like cultural, I guess, imports from that period did. Like you said, like the yeah. appeal was the thing that was kind of driving that whole like import industry. Um, but 
Uh, no, I think for me, just playing that game and then deciding I wanted to pick up a skateboard and then kind of just moving through that world after the fact, that was the thing I think that kind of centered me politically. Mm. Because the thing is, is it's weird to think about now because so much of like skateboarding then was was really strange. Like there's this weird MTV thing going on, but also like this kind of undercurrent of skateboarding that's always been there. Like this very strangely kind of aesthetics focused, um, you know, for lack of a better word, just like jazz weirdos who are doing it. Okay, sure. <laughs> and I know I'm serious. It's like it's the weirdest thing. It's just like you're rolling around on a plank of wood, and um, and there's something just kind of interesting about the way the body moves, but also just kind of, I guess, how certain brains that are able to do that are wired. Um, mm-hmm. There's like a really robust like sub community within that entire thing, like like outsider artists and you know politicos, weird musicians, and um, you know, like it was kind of the thing where like it 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 actually exposed me a great deal to like things that I later became interested in, like film. Um, certain kinds of music. And from there, just kind of like becoming aesthetically focused through my experience with skateboarding, uh, the politics kind of followed thereafter. Um, hmm. It was one of those things that I didn't really start putting together until my early undergrad, but being like a, a working class kid, um, you know, both parents worked and they split up, you know, um, not having much money and being kind of like angry and bored and jaded with everything at a pretty young age, then finding this outlet and then kind of then through that finding some way of thinking about the world that was kind of adjacent to like these politics that I ended up coming into later. It was all this really weird kind of, it was a strange ladder, but uh, definitely kind of started with this weird Dreamcast game. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think it's, I don't think that's so strange though. Cause it feels like the like politics of like that kind of like politics of disaffection, especially when you're that age, almost always have to start with like aesthetics as opposed to actual commitments where like, I, you know, listening to punk and like punk in this case being stuff like, um, you know, like the, 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 um, epitaph records, uh, yeah. compilations or whatever. Like my first punk show and my first show ever was like warp tour 99. So it wasn't like I was, you know, getting into the, the buzzcocks in the eighties or whatever. Like this is like very, very mediated already, but the, you know, like that, like it wasn't like I was really gravitating to whatever nascent politics there were in that stuff. I was gravitating towards like, you know, the cool pusshead art or whatever. Like I just liked, I liked, I guess not pusshead. Who's the guy who does like the, the crazy, like, uh, dudes driving, like with the, with the eight ball as the, I can't remember who that is. Um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about though. Um, the, the weird heads and all good artist. I wish I remembered his name. Um, but anyway, uh, I liked Pusshead too. Um, but anyway, like the, you know, like all that's aesthetic. It's not really like, it's not really saying, you know, I care about this because I care about like this particular claim in part because there's no clear claim that any of those, you know, groups make any, anyone on any of those record labels might be as much a libertarian as they are, a uh, a leftist or whatever. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, like, except for maybe like Greg Graffin from like Bad Religion, who's pretty open yeah. about his, uh, his, I guess, I guess progressive politics is what we would call them now. Yeah, I, I probably that would be, that would make sense. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Greg, I think Greg Graffin probably, if we, if we call, if we uh, labeled him like a hard leftist, I think probably he would want to disappoint us. Uh, but yes, like otherwise, absolutely, I would agree. Um, yeah, I, but it's interesting because, like, 
you know, Greg Graffin for sure. And like some of those people, but then again, like, you know, you, you re-listen to some of the, the music that you loved at that age or whatever. Like I re-listen to no effects and I'm like, wow, these guys are like just libertarians. Like this, this is weird. Like this, how did I not pick up on this? Why, why, why did I not like realize that these guys were just talking about like, you know, leave me alone and let me have my personal rights and don't tax me and stuff. This is like strange. Um, There's such an undercurrent to, to even like, uh, I guess, early punk stuff, you know, like that, that yeah. strange libertarian undercurrent, I think is there. And even like a, in scene politics, like it does feel a lot of times like there is like a, a strange young libertarians chapter of, of the oi scene that you have to contend with whenever you go to the all ages <laughs> venue or something. Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Like the, and like the, the, the idea of, of, um, of products being sort of the way you end up expressing yourself. Like I, I always remember I would look for new shirts at shows. I'd be like, Ooh, that guy has like a shirt I've never seen before. That's so cool. Or like, I'd, I'd make sure I didn't like be like, I hope, I hope the person that I know doesn't have, like, I hope the, I'm sorry, not the person I know. I hope the shirt that I'm wearing is not something that uh, I, I see someone else wearing. Like that was like knowing a band that no one knew or having something. It was all, and none of the content necessarily mattered so much as like the actual possession. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's also brought to bear by the fact that, like, when um, bands like NoFX try to do um, their version of American Idiot, it comes off really canned and forced. <laughs> yeah, I used to love the decline, and I can I can still listen to that song, like just as a song. But if I listen to the lyrics, I just get incredibly embarrassed. Um, it's like fifteen so, minutes long, isn't it? It's an eighteen-minute song. Yeah, I, I I used to think that was extremely cool. Um, I didn't have a lot of good ideas as a teen. Uh, but, it's but yeah, no, like, I think that's, that's something that's true about, about punk, but it's also like, I think what's, what's wild about thinking about that way with Jack, Jack Ryan radio, which I like, I never had. Um, so I'm grateful for you for sort of bringing that up is that like, it really is, it really is an expression of like aesthetics that, you know, Jack Ryan radio doesn't really pr promise any sort of coherent politics. Like it's a, it's a politics of revolt. It's a politics of like disdain or like like um triviality like you're always trivializing the things you're doing you're doing a bunch of spray painting and stuff like none of the stuff is like ultra serious like anything even remotely grimdark is just like oh i bought a i bought a, a spray with like a uh like a grim reaper on it this is so cool like <laughs> it's like you know it's nothing it's nothing like particularly um i don't know like it's nothing particularly like edgy or anything like that. It's all kind of like goofy and strange or whatever. And like that, that is like, that's way different than, than, um, that just has like a different effect. I would say than like, than a lot of the, the punk stuff, which like always tried to have that kind of like edge. Yeah, I think, and I think this speaks to like a larger problem, um, of, I guess, political media, political content generally, um, mm. kind of why I try to, avoid at least as far as like narrative media is concerned i try to avoid that stuff as much as possible uh, that's fair just because like it, it's usually either really clunky or its politics are just manifestly bad uh, <laughs> yeah i think like the only the only like political novel i'll recommend to people is uh is gaddis's jr but i think most people would not agree with me that that's an openly political novel um given that like no one seems to be able to read it very well uh uh, Everyone I, just complains that it's hard. Staring at a copy of JR right now. Uh, oh, so good. <laughs> I, yeah, I got twenty pages into it, and as and I'll say this: 
uh, writing a novel and all dialogue is a really great idea. I'm just not quite sure I'm ready for that yet. You gotta, uh, there's a, so you gotta go, and this, I'm gonna leave this in the episode because it's good advice for anyone who's going into JR. Uh, just Google like JR, I forget what you would Google. Hold on. Um, oh, it doesn't matter, but like Google like, uh, JR notes or something like that, or like Gaddis notes. There's a website that I used when I was doing my lists and reading JR that basically was like every page, they'll tell you who's talking to who, or every section they'll tell you who the people are in it. And it makes it so much easier to have a cheat sheet that you just like gradually stop needing it, which is wonderful. Uh, but yeah, definitely like Google the cheat sheet if you try it again, cause that that'll help a lot for sure. Um, every, but everyone should read that book. It's amazing. But I mean, that's like, it's not political in the way that like, I don't know, I, I'm trying to think of a good like political novel and I can't because I, I also don't really like them. Uh, yeah, like it, it's not political in the way that it's like laying out, oh, here are my politics and this is a, this is a polemic or something like that. Or, or this is a satire. It's, it's manifestly political in its form and content like melding together in the same way Jack Ryan radio is like if Jack Ryan radio has a politics, it's not what's said on the tags. It's not even the tagging itself. It's a mix of the tags and what your characters look like and the DJ and your enemies and the mechanics. Like it, it, it has to do with everything. Yeah. It, it's what's so, what I find so kind of um, wonderful about it too, is that like, as far as it does have like a coherent politics, it's a politics of like joy and pleasure. Mm, yeah, definitely. Which is something that I think most political media outright just shits the bet on, like at every turn. <laughs> yeah, and I know that it, not everything can be you know fun all the time, but I think it would behoove some people to you know try to do things that that do have it, even if it's like an open ended kind of political content that you have to fill in for yourself, just like some means of grounding that in like a joyous experience as opposed to just like the awfulness of the situation. Like I, I think of yeah. Like that, there's that new Invisible Man movie that that just came out. Oh yeah, sure. Like a part of a genre of movies that's sort of they're like they're they're movies that are that are you know kind of feminist in their politics, but they're also movies that spend like two thirds of the running time like absolutely brutalizing their female characters. Right. Yes. In, in- and uncomfortable. And to me, it's just sort of like I mean I've I don't know like I don't understand why the the violence is the necessary, you know, component that leads to the empowerment situation at the end of the movie. Like, I think that, you know, we can build, you know, manifestly political content that can do those kinds of things without just kind of showing us like this awfulness the entire runtime. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it feels to me like, I I think like a lot of those are trying to manifest, like, I mean, I'm using your word there, but like trying to manifest or mimic um, the kind of effect that movies like, I don't know, like movies like Martyrs or um, uh, even something like, uh, why am I forgetting the name of this movie? Um, Frontiers or... or Yeah, the the home invasion one, the the one that got the American remake with Michael Pitt. Um, Funny Games. Yeah, Funny Games. Like where these don't necessarily... I mean, Funny Games has politics in a sense. Um, Like it's a political movie, but like you could ignore the politics too in that movie and completely miss the point. Like it, it doesn't matter. It's not. It's a. It's a violent movie, and the violence is sort of not. I mean, it's relevant to the politics, but the awfulness in there is not. You know, it 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 serves a different function. It serves another function, I should say. Um, 
And so those movies, like, right or wrong, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not casting any sort of praise or non-praise. I have, like, an opinion about French brutalism, but I can't imagine anyone wants to hear it right now. Um, I think it's fine. Uh, opinion, I can I can leave it. <laughs> you, I, I, think, I think it's better in concept than execution. I'll say that. Um, I think the idea of something where it's like, oh, this is, like, so violent that it makes you rethink the idea of violence in film is a really cool idea. I I can't think of a lot of times where it really succeeds. I think, um, I think Funny Games does a better job of that than literally all of those other films, though, for sure. I like Funny Games. I think that's a great movie. Um, and I, I also think it's a good political movie. But again, like because like the suffering in the movie leads to something that is tangible and like understandable, not necessarily because of the violence and the horror in it, but as a as like a byproduct or as like sort of a I don't know something that happens like covalent to it almost. Um, so I can understand like when the violence is like the catalyst for the political moment, that does seem a little callous. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, it's one of those things too, like we have these conversations about, you know, like reliving trauma and things. And I feel like that's exactly what these movies rehearse. Mm. I don't really understand the appeal most of the time. Um, you know, and I know like, again, like not everything can be enjoyable, but like this is like a remake of a universal monster movie. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of to, like it seems a bit of a strange matchup. No, no. The universal monster movies were all, all about like extreme trauma. I'm to understand. Um, just just kidding. Uh, no, no, no. You're totally right. And I think like the thing about it to me too, thinking like tying it back to Jack Ryan Radio is like you could absolutely have sort of a a darker element underneath all of that, even in the, even in the nineties, like it's not like, or early two thousands, it's not as if like those games did not have that. Like, it's not as if you couldn't have uh, darker elements underneath uh, the happy facade or whatever. Like that wasn't something that is just the purview of contemporary indie games or whatever, but like the, like it didn't, it just never bothered with it. Like it never, excuse me. It never entered into like, Oh, well, here's the dark secret behind Jack grind radio, or here's like the really troubling truth that you have been like working towards as like, or working against or whatever. Like it never, never pulled the rug out. It always was sort of like the most extreme it got was like Lupin the third where it's like, Oh yeah. Like we, the cops are, are at, at, at best, uh, incompetent, uh, you know, uh, counterparts and at worst, uh, sort of like villains we want to take down. Yeah, you. It's interesting that you mentioned Lupin because I feel like there's such a kinship between like not only the art style but also just kind of like the characterizations. Yeah, definitely. Definitely like a, a monkey punch vibe to it, which um, is always kind of pleasant to see anywhere. Honestly, I agree. And it, like, there's there's politics of like of uh, positivity there too. I think like one of the things that I've been I've been really pleased about in the anime uh, series I've been doing um, with with Andrew. Like is finding like these moments of positivity, like unbound positivity in these works that are clearly like artistically interested and careful where it's like, oh, yeah, like it's OK to be pleased about something or it's OK to feel good about something. I think that's something that a lot of contemporary media is very reticent uh, to provide. It feels like it, it all has to be quite like, I don't know, deeply, deeply upsetting. Or, you know, on the other on the flip side, like it has to kind of serve you know, this monoculture that's emerging, uh. Uh, which, you know, I don't want to spend too much time wringing my hands about that, but, <laughs> you know, just like the media monopoly that Disney holds, like the fact that there are like maybe three to four different choices in the sea of infinite choices that you have, it's kind of, yeah, 
It's a bit rough. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people have talked about uh, much, much more intelligently than I have. And I'm sure you could too, or like it is, it is the, the death of like the, the mid market uh, film, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's a drag. Um, and in some ways, I guess like Jack Ryan radio is, is a, a mid market game. Like in that, like it is, I mean, it's not like bad in that way. I'm not trying to denigrate it. I'm just <laughs> saying like, it's not, it doesn't feel like a triple A game, even though I sh- I'm sure it had the budget of a triple A game and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like uh, an indie game necessarily. It feels like somehow somewhere in between, like there are flaws in it. It can be clunky, but it's also so endearing that you keep wanting to play it. Like it, it, it just works. Like, I feel like I could recommend that game to anyone. It's still like all this time later after playing all of these games, it's still my favorite game. No, absolutely. I, and I think like you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's like it, it does like, uh, for lack of a better word, like being humble, mm, mm-hmm. despite like it's you know window dressing, like almost as well as it possibly could. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just it's it's like you can imagine ways in which it would have just been like a totally. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this, like a totally like. Um, I don't know. You could imagine like a collectathon where like, oh, be sure to collect every single tag or like be sure to do this or be sure to do that. And like really the game is like it lets you kind of enjoy the space. It can be kind of frustrating to win at times, but like you can always lower the difficulty. It just kind of exists as like what it sets out to exist as, which is like kind of a fun exploratory skating game. I mean, like I was never good at I was never good at skating or anything in skater culture. I I think the one thing I really liked about skater culture, though, um, even if I couldn't really be a part of it, was um, that you didn't have to necessarily be like. I mean, this is going to sound contradictory after what I just said, but you didn't have to be good at it necessarily. Like it wasn't about becoming the best skater of all time. It was just about like getting good enough that you could have fun. Absolutely. Or like, you know, also just kind of understanding an environment to the extent you could like manipulate it or build things and kind of mm. your own fun or, or kind of just, you know, just sit around impressing yourself and your friends in whatever yeah, definitely. ways that you could. And two, you know, like it is one of those things where like, I remember, you know, back then like skating with my friends and just like putting on three, six mafia or something. And then just, <laughs> just kicking around for a few hours. And like, that was just absolutely fine. And, and then, you know, just like that, again, that culture, it's just uh, you end up getting so entrenched in it after a time. And then you start noticing all of these really strange outsider elements of it, like mm-hmm. uh, like the X Games things, you know, the stuff that you saw like on TV that got you into it or whatever. Like you start to see that like, oh, no, there's this strange undercurrent where like I'm being exposed to Joy Division in skate videos. <laughs> or like I'm, I'm watching like really creative editing in a, a documentary about sports for no good reason just to have it in there that they were like they felt that creative enough to do it. Like Spike Jones actually yeah. did a bunch of skate video work in the, in the nineties and early two thousands. And yeah, I remember that. Like that's, I think that's where I first, that and music videos were the places I first uh, encountered him. Yeah. It's uh, just like a whole cadre of weirdos just kind of like building this, this, you know, counterculture within this already countercultural thing. That's also being co-opted um, at the same time. Yeah. You know, Tony Hawk came out and it was pretty much over. <laughs> it wasn't over. Like more people started skateboarding, obviously, but just like the whole, you know, Mountain Dew being put on things and, 
you know. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think Tony Hawk is definitely like endeared himself to a lot of people, and I, I have I have no ill feeling towards Tony Hawk, especially a current Tony Hawk who's like, you know, wanders around and constantly gets owned at like people not knowing who he is. Like I think that's funny, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure like uh, Hawk being like such a celebrity was like, I mean, that was in the same way that we don't have a say counterculture of um professional football that's like you know like it's, it's you know you can't really have that when there are celebrities you can have like elements of it but the idea that the whole thing leads you to a counterculture is a little different yeah for sure um and i don't know it's just uh like the more i the more i'm thinking about it now right like um mm-hmm I didn't care about painting or photography. Um, all of the, all of the people who I first, you know, saw, who saw something in visual mediums, they were all skateboard people. Mm. It, again, like it's just this very creatively robust community of people. And, um, I don't know, it exposed me to a lot of very interesting ideas and, and modes of expression and, you know, pretty much for lack of a better word, kind of made me want to be an artist. Cool. Uh, let me ask you, like, uh, so I want to, I want to know two things. Well, the first thing I want to know is what kind of art do you do? Uh, like what, what, how do you consider yourself an artist? Cause that is super interesting to me. The other thing that I want to know, and, and you can talk about this more if you don't want to like talk about your art too much. Um, cause I, I did not, I did not warn you that I would ask you that, but then again, I didn't know that you were an artist. So this is, this is news and interesting news at that. Um, but, uh, um, what, uh, like Tell us a little bit about like your understanding of the connection between uh, Jack Ryan Radio and um, the and like nine eleven because I think that's a super super compelling connection and like the idea of one not being compatible with the other is is really interesting and I I think probably a lot of people can come up with like a couple of inferences as to how that would work but I'd like to hear you uh, talk about it a little more. Well, I think you know. Um... And people have pointed this out on on a politically adjacent podcast, perhaps about like the the certain qualities of especially like American comedy from from mm-hmm. the late eighties to we'll say late nineties. Um, that was sort of um, you could make jokes about the military and the yeah. military industrial complex, and uh, and also jokes at the expense of police. And um, basically, there was this kind of uh, inherent distrust of institutions. And, right. um, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, subversive, as subversive as, you know, Harvard graduates can be. <laughs> so, like, and then 9-11 happens and that entire kind of culture of uh, taking the piss out of, you know, these institutions kind of falls to the wayside to kind of make room for, you know, this kind of hyper militarized, you know, decade that we ended up going into. And it seems like any momentum, um, any kind of truly subversive stuff was either not happening in America or it wasn't really about America. I mean, like you were talking about the new French extremity earlier and, uh, it, it, you know, you rightly point out, it doesn't really have a coherent politics, but you know, like America, the cultural landscape was just kind of like so afraid and so willing to kind of just say, Hey, we want our institutions. We want to, you know, respect these things. And, um, cause you know, we, we want to be protected, you know, in this time of, you know, need and danger. Yeah. And, you know, as a result, the skepticism surrounding that kind of fell away as well. Um, there's, I mean, I was pretty young 
for the most part, but I don't remember the anti-war movement being particularly robust or powerful uh, in the years following 2003 and the invasion of Iraq. It took a long time to get back to it, I think. Like the, the I mean, the, the, the Iraq war really, I think, strengthened the anti-war movement. Like, I think that was a moment where people were robustly against something in a, in a very real way. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're totally right. Like it, 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 after 9-11, there was a real hit and, and you were not, it was not cool to talk about like, you know, uh, it was not cool to talk about not wanting to go to war. Um, yeah. And this, I remember doing that and not getting very good responses. Yeah, for sure. And this is also too, like, not just a uniquely American phenomenon, like this had reverberations Pretty much every industrialized nation on the planet, culturally mm. speaking. Yeah. I mean, it it felt like kind of we hit a button and business returned to like the kind of weird pre-Clinton era. Like the George W. Bush presidency really did kind of feel a lot like the H.W. presidency, except it was like way more just uh, successful. At mm. thing it set up, yeah. to, which is yeah. really funny to me because you know, H.W. being a former CIA man, you'd figure he'd have been better at that job. But I mean, Pete Buttigieg didn't win president presidency either, so. But he did get to go on Kimmel, so. Which is, I mean, in the end, that may have been the psyop all along. Who, who's to say? <laughs> I mean, what if what if it really is just like an opportunity to get on carpool karaoke or something? Like we're gonna see come <laughs> like on carpool karaoke and. <laughs> And that- Kamala Harris was was only in it for the cordon. She's like, you know what? I I I love this stuff. I'm gonna run for president. I bet he'll let me on then. That automatically disqualifies you. By the way, you're a if, psychopath. <laughs> if you like carpool karaoke, or you want, yeah, I mean, for sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's my- I always have to. I have to be really nice about that because my my mother in law always sends them to me. But yes, it's it's a nightmare. Um, but yeah, the um, uh. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, and one of the things I think is really cool about what you're saying about Jekyll and Radio is that it it kind of exists as this um, artifact in that way, right? Where like the like the the pre nine eleven culture of of skepticism and and doubt about institutions like um, well, I mean, like the military or like the or like um, uh, police or, or whatever, right? Like the fact that that existed and we we've kind of like lost that that edge in our in our humor or our politics like being able to go back and see it not in an edgy way not to like look at it and be like oh yeah this was just people being angry in the 80s or whatever but like actually sort of like in a way that's just pure purely creative um it's almost super valuable absolutely and i mean again like it's 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 sort of like a you know sugar for the pill too i mean and there's so mm. like the i mean Quite literally, the plot in this game con- concerns like a bunch of kids who are first at war with each other, then at war with law enforcement, and then at war with a shadowy corporation. <laughs> and I don't remember any talk about like multinational corporations or like the banking industry during the you know the run up to the Iraq War or like much of the time during it. Not at least not until the financial meltdown in two thousand eight. I feel like those things were mostly invisible as targets for any kind of yeah political discussion or even political praxis. Forgive me for using that word. Sorry. No, no, you're, you're good. You're good. But, um, no, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to see this thing that kind of did feel a lot like today, 
like both in like it's kind of like multicultural kind of emphasis as far as the characters are concerned. It's skepticism about big money and uh, it's re- and big money's relationship to art as well. Um, yeah. There's a whole lot of um, architecture in that game and, and little items that start to litter the world that look a great deal like a lot of sculpture that's happening right now. Like this kind of hyper stylized anime style three dimensional sculpture you see like Takashi Murakami yeah, or something. I was about to say Murakami. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like the the whole super flat thing. Like it was doing mm-hmm. that, but the super flat in this case was like the product of like this homogenous corporation that was quite literally trying to flatten everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was such a good plot line. <laughs> I always forget about that. Um, but yeah, no, and like and like the. It, I think like there was something so connected with the thematic quality of that and the aesthetics of cell shading that I got fooled into thinking everything cell shaded was super cool for a while. Oh, we all. Um, I just I was just like, this is the best. Like, finally, they solved video game aesthetics, and this, <laughs> this is all anyone's gonna want. And then, of course, like ultimately, uh, that proved to be false. But um, it was it was a nice ride while we had it. Uh, I will say that much. <laughs> And you know, to you know, to its credit, if the game doesn't play well, it at least doesn't age poorly. Mm. All the cell shaded stuff looks pretty good, whether or not it's a garbage game. Nice. Well, I'm gonna have to play it again now. I have it. I have it on PC. I don't know how the port is, but um, I can't imagine it's too bad. Uh, better than finding a CRT and digging out my Dreamcast. <laughs> well, the the port is uh has been remastered in HD and it's got dual analog support now with a with a unfixed camera it's a free Oh yeah. So you can go full 360 degrees. So that makes it a hell of a lot easier to target things. It's less cumbersome. Well, will you come on stream if I do it? Absolutely. All right, wonderful. Well, Zach, this has been really great. Do you think there's is there anything that you wanted to get to that we didn't get to? Uh whew. No, I mean I think that um I think I said my piece about Jet Set Radio. Thank you for having me on. It's oh, out of the blue and no, you did I, absolutely. No, it was my pleasure. Um, and and you have a Twitter. Uh, you said you're not active on it, but I think everyone always says that. Uh, where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me at uh, at Herbert underscore Chill. Um, if if I could, I'd like to plug a, a friend's project. Okay, yeah, please. Uh, my friends Joey and Jamie are currently making an indie game themselves, and it's called Piss. Um, I get a kick out of that. Wow. <laughs> um, you can follow them at Biopun. Uh, they don't really have any gaming content there, but um, it's it's been kind of a slow burn, but they're slowly but surely putting it together. And it's this sort of strange um, open world 2D kind of isometric RPG where, in, in fact, peeing is a mechanic. <laughs> so I'm looking I'm looking at the GIF of it now. It's very good. So, but yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on, Trevor. It was a really nice talk. Yeah, of course. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And please, uh, it's not a not an idle request, an idle uh, invitation. Please come on the stream uh, when I do if slash when I do Jet Grand Radio. It would be an absolute pleasure. Sounds great. All right, uh, talk to you soon. All right, have a good one. You do. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. 
Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.